this conversation guide so you can see it. That's what I want to see. All right, cool. Uh, let me know, do I look framed up? Centered, at least? Yeah. Okay, and it looks focused? As, as good as I can see. Okay, dope. All right, man. Hey, Hector. Thanks so much for joining me. Thanks so much for for joining the podcast. It's been a minute since I did it, uh, since I've done an episode. But I'm really excited to talk talk to you because I mean, you ran a really inspiring campaign way back when, um, and there's just a lot going on in the political climate right now. Um, I want to talk about some of the things that are happening in Newark. Um, I know our friend Anthony Diaz was running for mayor, so I, I wonder if you have some insight into what happened to that campaign. But we'll talk about that. A little later, but um, I just wanted to start by just catching up with you because it's been a while since we spoke. So, how have you been? How's uh, how's everything gone? Yeah, dude, and uh, always a pleasure to chat with you. It has been a minute. Um, I've been keeping very busy ever since the end of the last political campaign. Um, we built hard at work on the ICE essential contracts here in Hudson County, which has subsequently uh, been rescinded and is now being passed. So, that's one victory that we can put. Uh, up on a up on a scoreboard is that we got the ice contract um, canceled in Hudson County. We're still working on issues like abolishing the line, which is a as you know the ballot design that in New Jersey keeps establishment candidates winning over and over and over without much competition. And you know just really developing the grassroots progressive organizing infrastructure to a degree that hopefully one day we will be able to. You know, go toe to toe with the machine and really knock them out. We've had some great victories. There were some great candidates who ran in the last election in Jersey City, and we got some tremendous victories out of those races. Uh, but we still have a long way to go, and there's still a lot of work to do. So I guess I've been uh, going back to the basics of organizing and just trying to get stuff done here at the county for the everyday person. Right, and talk to me about the work that you've been doing because you work at an anti-money laundering corporation, right? So talk, can you just uh, give me some uh, context and some background about where you work, actually? Because I don't think I ever had that conversation with you, um, but it'd also be a good conversation to have with the world. Yeah, absolutely. So my day job is that I work for UBS, which is a large international bank, and I do anti-money laundering for them. So what do I do? I review clients and their accounts and look for uh, items that might be indicating that they're engaging in money laundering. So people who are using their bank accounts to engage in illegal activity or to bring illegal activity money from illegal activity into the banking system. Mm -hmm. I investigate those people, try to track down their source of wealth, where they got the money from. You know, I'm really just, uh, if you've ever heard the phrase, follow the money, that's literally what I do on a day-to-day basis. I follow the money, try to find uh, what people are up to with their bank accounts, and if they're doing something that I think is not legitimate, to escalate that to uh, a place where we can take care of it. Right, right. That's really interesting. Um, and we'll, we'll talk to about that, hopefully, I'm sure, um, some more. But uh, I just wanted to start with some small talk because it's been a minute since we, we caught up. So, you know, what's, what's been going on in your life? Everything uh, everything good? Yeah, man. A lot of change, interesting change, you know, since uh, the last race. Uh, I, did, I got married and I had a baby, so I've had a lot on my plate in that regard, being a new father. Um, you know, just trying to get my bearings and be a good uh, parent to my baby and show her the sort of things that I find in 
personal level, but um, I want to just jump in real quick and start talking about lessons from the campaign trail because I think that's what was more most inspiring to me about you know when we met. Um, so you know, talk to me about that experience. Like, what was it like? You know, just starting a campaign from nothing um, because that's an experience that I think a lot of people don't understand and don't have. Yeah, I mean, it was a great experience, you know, literally starting from the beginning, it, it was crazy. Uh, I remember my campaign literally started with me going to debate watch parties at like a little bar and I would take some receipt tape and I would scribble my website onto it and I'd pass it out to different people at the bar and be like, hey, I'm running for Congress. And from that to where we ended up was, was really amazing. Um, I think we had a tremendous amount of success and, and one of the great lessons was that there's no greater um, way of spreading your message than word of mouth. I, I still think that with this digital age and social media and all that stuff, the best way for you to know if you're having an impact is word of mouth. When, when people were coming up to me, when people would just come up to me on the streets and be like, hey, Osagara, or uh, people that I knew personally would say, hey, you know, people have been asking about you, that's when you really know that, that you've had success on a different level. So I think that, um, as much as our generation is into the digital and wants to, you know, use social media to the max, which I, I definitely was a fan of and had great success, I think that you have to be on the ground, in the streets, really touching down with people. People have to know your face, uh, your voice, your demeanor before they'll feel comfortable voting for you. So I think that making a personal connection with the voters and with the district, I think it is one of the key takeaways and something that I don't think any person yeah, and I, I think that reminds me of like when we first, you know, hung out, which was we were both volunteering um, out on a political campaign um, or to help out a political campaign, right? And I think that was a really good experience because do, do you remember that by the way when we first had a when we first talked? I think the first first time that we ever met, if if I'm not mistaken, was at movement school. Yeah, exactly. Right, and, and that was just a really interesting time because, I mean, first of all, I, I had nothing, I, I didn't know anything about politics at that time, or at least getting involved in politics, because I was still in college. Um, and for me, that experience really just, first of all, it opened my eyes up to the fact that there's more in life than uh, just kind of sitting around and, you know, working. There's, you know, there's issues that need to be resolved. There's, you know, Things that are important to me are like the legalization of marijuana. That's the issue that's important to me. Um, there's there's so many big issues that don't get addressed on a day to day basis through corporations, through corporate America, um, through that world. Um, what were some of the big issues that motivated you to get involved in politics? Yeah, definitely ICE. The ICE attendant contract that was a big issue. Um, you know, just because where I live is, is a huge immigrant community, a lot of people coming here, documented and undocumented, and um, I just believe in the dignity of every human being. So, um, given that this is such a diverse place and that every person, you know, th there's no such thing as coming to America the right way, quote unquote. You know, if you came to America, there's no such thing as the right way. You're looking for a better life, there's no right way to seek a better life. So. Um, that issue got me really motivated and, and it's something that mattered a lot to, to people in the district. And the other one was housing, you know. Um, this district is 70% renters and so the, the cost of rent is, is an incredible burden for the people who live in the district and it's something that everybody understands. Again, uh, the prices are going up and we're not getting much more for it. I remember what my mother paid for rent when I was a little kid and the inflation has, has taken off significantly for, for 
more mm. in terms of space. So uh, being priced out by the big developers that are coming into Hudson County and, and putting up these huge uh, high rises that nobody can afford, and we import a bunch of wealthy New Yorkers who, who continue to raise the rent, and you know that was a, a major issue that I think a lot of people uh, could really gravitate towards and, and knew was a significant problem in the district, and you know so those and and obviously the big issue because. Like I said, this is what I do on a day-to-day basis, but political corruption was the thing that really, really, really made me want to get involved because, you know, behind every significant issue is a a pool of money and people who own that pool of money and want to keep things exactly the way they are. So I felt like political corruption was one of the most pressing issues that we face as a people in the United States. And, and, And again, it's something that really, really motivated me to want to run. Can you talk to me more about the affordable housing issue and how, like, your background with that? Because I think that's, you know, that sounds to me to be, like, your big interest and what sparked your interest in politics and that whole world entirely. Yeah, definitely. And housing was definitely one of the main pillars of uh, the campaign and I think was our first policy proposal that we put out because the fact of the matter is, like I said, most people here don't own. They're renters, right? So you have a very few number of landlords who own all the property and they rent to everybody else and over the course of my lifetime certainly the price that people are paying in rent has has dramatically increased and the services that you're getting in return have not dramatically increased so what does that do is that that pushes people out people who used to live here are moving to cheaper places they're moving to florida they're they're going somewhere where they can afford to live Mm -hmm. and what's what happens that's those people are replaced by people who are coming over from New York who will pay more than the people who left. And so that pushes up the price of rent. And that's been a phenomenon that's been going on at least since uh, 9-11. Um, and to this day, you have all these high rises that are going up all over Hudson County. People, this is a very poor immigrant community, so it's very hard to know who it is that's that's a, nobody from the community already can afford to live in these places or very very few people from the community can afford to live in these places but they're being sold out they're making a ton of profit and what they do is that they're pricing the community the people who grew up in these communities they're pricing them out of the neighborhoods that they grew up in so that, that's something that i feel is like a huge moral issue and a huge problem and it's something that we need to address and the fact of the matter is that the politicians they benefit from this because the real estate developers are big campaign contributors. Yeah, and that reminds me a lot about District 8, which is the district that you ran in, because you got cities like Jersey City there, you got cities like Hoboken, you got, I mean, that, that's like bordering New York, and rent there is extremely high because of its proximity to the city. Um, so talk to me about that, because I think you probably witnessed the astronomical rise of the rent prices, because that's, that's probably not new now, but back when you were running for office, you know, we saw the, the prices go up and up. So talk to me about that experience. Like, was your family personally impacted? Did you see your rents dramatically in, like, increase to the point where you felt pressured to, to run for uh, office? It's, it's certainly something that I've endured and my family members living here their entire lives have endured, but the fact of the matter is that it was a culmination of a lot of things that made me want to run. You know, the housing thing, it's just that we face so many different crisis points mm-hmm. because the housing thing I would say was that is, is at a crisis point. Um, there were a whole bunch of other issues that were at a crisis point, I felt, at the time, 
when it comes to climate, when it comes to uh, transportation issues, when it comes to wages for workers. And, you know, I think it was the culmination of realizing that we had all these different crisis points and that nobody was really taking care of these issues from the standpoint of regular everyday people, working class people. And that's what really made me want to run. You know, I think looking around, housing is big, healthcare is big, education is big, and, and you just keep coming up on all these issues that are big. They're very, very big, and they're not getting taken care of. Um, and nobody's stepping up to the plate to challenge the status quo. And, and the culmination of all those things, I think, is was what made me ultimately want to run, you know, I, and I've always said this, in a perfect world, I would have never run, you know, if, if we had representatives who were getting the job done, who were doing things that I could agree with, maybe I would have never chose to run, right, but that's not where we, that's not what was happening, and right. so I did take that step forward, I did decide to say, you know, we have so many issues that, you know, I do feel like I have something to contribute to, to the argument in general. Right. And so what do you see as some of the bigger issues right now that are impacting like politics, both locally in your area or, you know, nationwide? Like, what do you see? Uh, for me, I, the thing that I notice the most is the rising gas prices, um, but I'm not in New Jersey anymore. So talk to me about what the big issues are in New Jersey. Yeah, I think inflation is certainly the biggest one. I have noticed like grocery costs have gone up significantly and, and that matters a lot to work class people. Obviously the cost of gas matters a lot to work class people. But the other one that I think is like student loan debt, you know, I think that that is the real biggest issue. And and I harp on it a lot these days because I really do see it as the, as the major issue. Um, as our generation ages in and we're supposed to be the ones who are sort of keeping the economy afloat, if we've got this huge debt burden that's sucking out our uh, consuming ability, it's going to have a drag on the economy. And mm -hmm. I don't think people really recognize that. Mm -hmm. So the student loan debt mm -hmm. crisis is something that I'm very, very focused on at this point. It's something that I think would have a significant, honestly, positive effects for the economy if we had a president who would do something like cancel student loan debt. And what do you think about income inequality? Because I think that's one of the, the issues that really keeps me up at night um, is income inequality because you have one class of people which you might be more familiar with because you know you live on the East Coast, but you have the, uh, the New York-centric class of people and then you have middle America, which to me has been left behind. I mean, people don't know about why I moved to, Me uh, to Memphis, which is you know exactly in the center of the country. Um, or at least as close to the center of the country as you know I could find. But I've always noticed that New York has been doing fine, California has been doing fine, Texas has been doing fine, and th those and Chicago has been doing fine. But everywhere in the middle of the country, middle America has been left behind. And I think for me, the, the reason that is is because of income inequality, because all of the power is centralized in those areas. Um, so do you see that as a big issue? Um, I, I know it might be a little different to see that being from the East Coast, but do you see that as one of the big issues that, you know, play this country? No, absolutely. And I think that income inequality has, has been like a historically major issue for the country. And you can't keep going the way that we've been going, which is fewer and fewer people having greater and greater income. I, I think that we do need to come to a place where um, we see a reversal of that. You know, the, the debt, the CEO to average worker ratio used to be one to 12. I see it used to be about 12 times their lowest paid worker. 
that that ratio now is over three hundred, mm-hmm. and that's not a, that's not sustainable. You know, if if we're to have a healthy economy, people need to see upward mobility, and that's not what we're seeing because the the top of the spectrum is hoarding all the wealth. So, uh, one of my favorite books is uh, Capital in the Twenty First Century by Thomas Piketty, mm-hmm. uh, which does focus on income and wealth inequality to a large extent, and, and I do think that we need to raise taxes on the owner class, on the capital class who are essentially like just sitting on piles and piles and piles of money that should be building schools, building roads, uh, building bridges, um, building infrastructure, and unfortunately it's not, it's just being ordered by by a very, very, very small number of people. So ultimately, I do think that uh, the right policy is to tax a significant portion of the wealth that's just being sat on at this point. All right, and on that point, um, we briefly talked before the camera started rolling about the pandemic, right, COVID-19. And do you feel that has exacerbated income inequality in a way, or do you feel like the playing field is still level? No, I think it's, it's made income and wealth inequality much, much, much worse. You know, people have been falling down the spectrum. You know, people in the middle have fallen down, and people that tip at the very top of the spectrum have now elevated themselves. So. I, I think that the, the pandemic has made income and wealth inequality much, much worse, unfortunately. Yeah. And do you do you see any solution to that? Because I think that's like the biggest issue to me that, that really keeps me up at night is it feels like the coasts have forgotten that middle America even exists, right? Because there's not yeah. as many corporate jobs. There's not as many oh, work from home jobs, you know, in middle America, right? The people out here are still working at grocery stores. They're working at Target. They're working at Amazon. They're working in warehouses. So, um, do you see that as a big problem? Like, do you feel that this pandemic has exacerbated uh, income inequality? Absolutely. Absolutely it has. Um, the workers are not, the workers have not kept up with inflation and the owners are far exceeding inflation. And so, yeah, the, in, in real terms, the poor have gotten poor and the rich have gotten richer, unfortunately. So speaking as a former candidate, um, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you have any thoughts about potential solutions to an issue at yeah. that scale? Yeah, yeah, you should tax the rich. You really should just raise taxes on them. Um, that's, that's honestly the, the, the quickest, simplest and most definitive way to, to reverse the trend in income and wealth inequality is just to tax um, their capital gains at much, much higher rates. I think the bigger issue, though, is the innovation portion of that, right? Like, how do you create jobs in middle America that, that can compare to the jobs that exist, you know, on the coast? Like, is there a solution to that that you have in mind? I, do, I really don't think that that's something that can happen, honestly, because you're not going to have equalization of wages and costs over different places. So that's what determines the type of jobs you're going to find there. So I, I don't, I really don't think mm-hmm. you can replicate the the coasts in in Middle America. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you can have is not have as great a disparity between those at the very top and those at the very bottom, which is which is honestly what I think we should strive for because you're never going to have an equalization across the board. Mm-hmm. The best you can do is is um, reduce the margin. So make those at the, bring those at the very bottom up and ensure that people at the top of the spectrum are not taking too, too much of it. 
So let's move on to the next portion of this conversation. So what advice do you have for people that are interested in running for office? Because I, I definitely have some interest in running for office in the future. Um, and I, I think you might still have political aspirations, but what advice do you have as a, a, a former candidate? My best advice is to really make yourself known in your community. Like when you run, people should want, people are gonna wanna know why you are the best candidate, not just generically why the other person sucks or is terrible, you know, and I, and I think that's easy to do to say this other person sucks, but that saying this other person is bad is not automatically going to lead people to know why they should vote for you instead. And so I think that candidates should focus more on knowing why you really want to run. Why do you really want to run? What, what can you offer to the people that it's more than generically politics sucks because a lot of people know that politics sucks and a lot of people are unhappy with the way that our political class treats us. However, we need to have a, a real message for the people. You know, the reason, one of the big, big reasons I didn't run this time around is that when I ran in 2020, I had a narrative mm -hmm. that I was giving people about myself about the person I was running against, about the race in general. Mm -hmm. That narrative and that story was very personal to me. And, and I think anybody who, who saw or followed the campaign at the time could understand and could see that I really felt that run. I felt that race. I, you know, I really thought we were doing the right thing and that, that I was not just running just to run. I was running because I had something to present to the people. If I don't feel that way, I wouldn't run again unless I had something to offer the people. And that's what I would tell any other prospective candidate, you know, have a, re have a reason why you're running and why people should choose you. Don't just say, well, politics sucks and, and the people in charge are terrible because everybody already agrees with that. Mm -hmm. What they, what they want to hear is like, why does, why should that truth lead me to decide that you, you in front of me are the best candidate? So I, I would tell candidates work very seriously on, on determining what it is that's motivating you to run. One of the things that I was most inspired about your campaign um, was you were able to amass a huge following, not just, you know, on the ground, but also on social media, which I think is a, a huge part of the conversation, right? Because social media is where the national discourse happens, right? I, yeah. I actually kind of see a future where government becomes obsolete because of the prevalence of social media, right? We're able to communicate so much more efficiently using social media than through the slow, um, the, the halls of Congress are kind of slow, right? So talk to me about that because I think that was the thing that, that made me most interested about serving your campaign was um, the fact that you were able to build such a big presence, not just on the ground, but online where people are actively communicating, they're actively exchanging ideas. So like, what are your thoughts about that? And maybe even the future of democracy, because democracy itself has been kind of plagued with this uncertainty because social media has consumed more of the discourse than the halls of Congress. Yeah, and that's really interesting. It's like the, the future of like where we're going with all this, right? So I, I obviously it was big on social media and, and I think it was great for getting our message out. You know, it's it's weird because it's a good thing in some ways, but it's a bad thing in some ways because I I like how much of the discourse happens on social media, 
but I certainly wouldn't want a government run by social media because there's so much chaos and so much uh, discord, right? Um, as slow as the halls of Congress might be, I can only imagine what it would be like if we had to get consensus amongst Twitter. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. So um, I think social media is very powerful for having an open and honest dialogue about the issues that we care about. And I think it's become a good method for us to communicate amongst one another because it does there's a viral effect right if, if people like what you're saying they're going to flood to you and i think that's kind of what happened to us is that they saw people saw a message that they didn't see from a lot of congressional candidates i wasn't afraid of certain things being taboo if i felt like it was the right thing if we're talking about palestine or we're talking about cannabis legalization there were a lot of issues that um people said you know do you want to be this outward on it. And I said, yeah, because that's how I believe. And so those things are positive for social media. And I think that it does help to have a place where we can have those larger macro conversations. In terms of like, would social media or something like it, you know, displace government or, or be a better way of organizing? I don't know because I have it's hard, it's too hard to get consensus mm-hmm. or to reach a, a consensus point on social media such that I don't know what a decision-making outcome would be. You know, I think that if we had a way of having accountability, of tracking, um, you know, getting actions done in real world through social media, that would be different, but that'd be something else entirely. And what discrepancies did you see between the engagement that you were getting on social media and the on-the-ground engagement that you are getting? Because I think that, that was one of the most misleading things um, yes. is you you see the the growth of your 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 Twitter your exponential growth on Twitter but it didn't translate to the votes on the ground so right. how how did that first of all impact your morale because I think when you see that growth because and that reminds me of when I first ran for con- uh, not for Congress I ran for state assembly in Jersey mm-hmm. and um, I was focused heavily on the social media um, I thought social media was everything. I thought that was really important, but that didn't translate to the on the ground votes. And then when I, you know, started volunteering on your campaign, I was really inspired because I saw the astronomical rise that you had on, you know, your growth on social media. So how how did that affect your morale? First of all, because as a candidate, when you see those numbers going up, you get really excited. You feel like people are hearing your message, but then on election day, it doesn't translate into the electoral result that you're expecting. So how, how did that impact your, first of all, your morale, but um, also the pace that you were in your campaign at? Yeah, and, and what I'll say is that I think it was important to see that discrepancy because it's social media is not everything and Twitter likes don't vote and people have to recognize that. Um, there's going to be a very severe discrepancy between the people who are on social media and the people who are high propensity voters. And trying to bridge that gap is important and it's, it's very powerful work, but we're not there yet. We're not there yet. So I understood, and we understood that as a campaign, right? And we knew that social media is good because it gets your message out to more people who might be willing to support you, right? And when you're trying to fundraise, when you're trying to do all this sort of stuff, get volunteers, that's very important and it helps a lot. Mm. But you have to know that those are not going to be voters for the most part. And I think people generally, if, if you're very serious about politics, you have to understand that social media is not a vote. Mm. Social media is basically PR and that can help you get in front of people 
will vote, but there is going to be a very severe discrepancy between the audiences that you find on social media who are going to be a lot younger and a lot more diverse and the audiences that you're going to find when you go to a polling booth are predominantly they're going to be older and they're going to be less diverse and so it is important that you work hard on having a good social media game because that sort of stuff is important but you have to know that your average voter is not going to be a social media user. Right. And so what what advice do you have to help inspire those those younger candidates who want to get involved in politics, but there's not a lot of reasons anymore, right? Because a lot of people do it for like the clout. There, a lot of people do it because they actually do care about, you know, issues like inflation. Um, but with the pandemic, uh, a lot of the issues have kind of taken a back burner and politics has kind of like the, the discourse has kind of died down because of how much the conversation has gotten drowned out by social media. Um, so what advice would you have to young people who like, do you feel like young people are still inspired to run for office generally? Do you feel like they've given up on politics? Like, I, cause I haven't seen as many you know, exciting young candidates. Um, lately. Yeah. I, and, and unfortunately, I feel like there are a lot of people have to now. I think a lot of people are very disappointed in the state of politics right now. They kind of, I think a lot of, especially young leftists, have, feel a certain way about Bernie and, and the squad and feel a little bit of disappointment over the way that things have gone. And I think that that's normal and I understand it. But I think that it's important to get past those feelings and to realize that we're, it's really a long term fight that we're in. And you can't let the, the disappointments that creep up and the small issues that might turn you off the politics turn you off the politics because the establishment wants nothing more than for people like us to not be engaged in politics. Mm. What their huge fear is that young, diverse leftists blood politics and take over, which we absolutely could do if, if we put effort into it. So I, I do see a little bit of uh, unfortunately disappointment and I see young leftists wanting to tune out, but I, you know, part of my work is making sure that people do not tune out and making sure that younger people are turning up to vote. And what are the hurdles that you encountered when running for office? Because I think that's what people, like, that's the untold story, is, like, the paperwork, the filing deadlines, like, the, the petition, the signatures. So talk to me about those hurdles, because I think that's what is the real lapse of motivation. It's not a lack of interest, but it's the fact that there are so many barriers in the way that prevent people from being able to access the political world. Yeah, and the biggest, the biggest, honestly, hurdle is monetary. You know, you have to raise a ton of money to be able to run, and most people don't have a ton of money, and they can't turn around and ask somebody for a ton of money, and so it's very difficult just to launch a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, the paperwork stuff, like petitions and stuff like that, those things can get done. You can do that by yourself with, with a friend or two. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not going to prevent most people from running. It's the fact that you have to raise a ton of money, or else nobody's going to take you seriously. It's the fact that you have to present yourself a certain way or else nobody's going to take you seriously. It's all these untold and unspoken rules and politics that you're going to bump up against. That's what really keeps people out of, the, out of engaging with the system because people feel like it's not a legitimate system. That only it's, it's uh, skewed so that only certain people win and they're ready. And that makes you, you know, why would you play a rigged game essentially is what a lot of people ask themselves. 
And so how did your background as an anti-money laundering, you know, professional um, impact your, your ability to run for office? Like, did you have some insight that helped you, you know, raise money? Like, talk to me about how that shaped your decision to run. I, I think my career helped me most in policy, uh, in crafting policy, because I've seen the monetary side of corruption, you know, face to face, and I see it, I confront it every single day. So, so I feel like in a policy way, it helped a lot, but certainly didn't help me, you know, fundraise or anything like that. It, it didn't, it didn't make the load any lighter in terms of like the logistical things that somebody needs to run for office or the things that keep young people from office. Like, it didn't help in that way, but certainly I had a lot of insight um, around crafting policy having to do with financial corruption. So what advice do you have for young people about the fundraising hurdle? Because that, that is a big hurdle. Um, and how did you approach that? And how did you, you know, even start that conversation? Because one of the things that was the toughest for me when I launched my campaign uh, way back when was asking for donations, right? I'm not the type of person that likes asking for donations because right. it's it's a hard ask to make. And that was one of the things I think we learned um, when we first met in movement school was that hard ask is, is really hard yeah. to make, the, the donation ask. So what, what did you learn from movement school that helped you make that hard ask easier? Well, not exactly from movement school, but I would say that just doing the fundraising itself was in, an incredible learning experience. And, and the fact of the matter is there's this thing called call time, which is the worst thing that any candidate does, which is you get on the phone and you call random people mm -hmm. and you ask them to donate to you. And the simple truth of the matter is that the more call time you do, the more money you will raise. Mm -hmm. And so honestly, that, that's my best advice is to, to any candidate who wants to run for office, don't you have to learn to become comfortable with a very uncomfortable situation which is calling up a person you've never met once in your life and asking them to give you money and that's a hard thing to do it's very uncomfortable it's very degrading it doesn't feel good but that is honestly the best advice that i could give to anybody hoping to run for offices do your call time call as many people as you can practice and and ultimately one day you'll get good at it and it will become a lot easier yeah, and what advice do you have for people that have the anxiety over call, call time? Because I think call time is the scariest thing for young voters, uh, or sorry, young prospective candidates. Um, what, do you, what advice do you have for people on, on how to get through that hurdle? Because like you said, money in politics is probably the biggest issue, right? And yeah. if, if call time is so uncomfortable for so many people, which it is because anxiety is a nationwide you know, epidemic, um, how, how do young people get over that hurdle? You just gotta practice, you know, you gotta do it a bunch. And that, that's really the only thing, you know, it, it, it's an uncomfortable situation. It's not something people like to do. Nobody wants to call up a random person and ask them for their credit card number over the phone. Nobody wants to do that, honestly. But if you, the more you do it, the better at it you will get. And, um, that's honestly the best, best, best advice I could give to any person is that the more you do it, the better at it you'll become. So, uh, what were the, the high points of the campaign then? You know, because call time is obviously the, the part that people... Very low point. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, what were the good points? Because, you know, my, my experience, I, I was a canvasser, right? Like, I loved knocking on doors. Call time was never for me because I didn't like asking for money, but I loved talking to people door to door and, you know, just talking to them and having conversations about the issues. That was, like, where my interest came into politics. But what... What was what was the high points of your campaign like? What because like, I know call time is like the anxious point, 
what light at the end of the tunnel can you give for aspiring candidates? Yeah, I mean, the high points of the campaign definitely were when we would hold meeting groups. This is in the way before COVID time when we would meet face-to-face with people at someone's house. And it was just a great interaction, a great time to, to see where people were at and uh, find out about the issues that they cared about. Um, when I was out at a rally meeting people, honestly, just having interactions with human beings, that's, that's what I've really got into politics for. Is to, is to hear about people's issues and try to help them solve those issues. So talking to people, getting in front of people, working on a room full of people who, who are interested in, in, in having a more open political system, that was by far the high point, just talking to different people. You hear so many different perspectives, so many different stories, so many different people who uh, find their way to your candidacy from, from many different avenues, and, and those interactions will stay with me for a long, long time. So let's talk a little bit about the future, because I know we had a, a mutual friend that um, he was interested in running for office. He's no longer running for office, uh, but Ricky Rojas, a uh, great friend of ours. Um, and, you know, talk to me about that district specifically, because I know you mentioned that there's a new, there, there might be a, a progressive candidate that, you know, is showing some light out there. But talk to me a little bit about, first of all, the demographics of the district. Um, we did already talk about what, you know, interested you, you in politics, but what are the issues that still exist in that district and that you feel that this new uh, candidate, who I hope to have on the show um, at some point, um, is hoping to, to face? Yeah, so the district is, like I said, very work-class, very, uh, like, Hispanic immigrant district. Um, the thing is that the, the establishment, the machine, has a very firm grip on the voting base around here. And that operates in a lot of different ways, mostly through the county and municipal governments, which hire a lot of people, and then those people feel indebted to the politician that's in charge. Um, you know, what I would say is that the progressive movement here is still uh, young and immature, and immature not in a bad way, but in a way of like it's underdeveloped. And so we still have a long way to go uh, before we can continue, before we can credibly challenge the power establishment here. But every candidate that steps up to back, uh, I think, moves us further down that road. And so I'm grateful for anybody who steps up to challenge the machine there's actually there are actually i think five total candidates mm-hmm. in the race now mm-hmm. and you know i think that that's a good thing for democracy the more people want to be engaged in our system the more people they'll pull into the system and, and hopefully one day they'll help us bring down the machine so i think that this district is very interesting it's a solid solid blue district so whoever whoever wins the democratic primary in this district will be the congressperson for the district mm-hmm. and so that makes the democratic primary the only real election that you get mm-hmm. and so um that's where we stand and i think like i said the the progressive movement here still has a long way to go mm-hmm. but somebody's got to go that long way and so i'm grateful for every everybody that steps up to, to help us move the ball down the field do you see any like shining lights in that uh area like people that you are inspired by personally a lot of, there are a lot of great uh organizers that that inspire me on a daily basis and mm-hmm. that i keep in touch with and some of them are elected so i'm not gonna uh put a target on their back but there are a lot of people who i think are inspirational and are doing good things for the progressive movement here in 
Yes, Tony. Okay. And what advice do you have for candidates running specifically in that area, right? Because one thing that I want to talk about on this yes. politics is I want to segment you know, the conversations that I'm having with, you know, the people local here in Memphis, the people in, you know, New York, wherever I want to have conversations with people, because I love the virtual format, because we're able to communicate across, you know, the globe. But um, what advice do you have for potential candidates specifically in your district, um, or the district that you were, that you uh, were inspired by, which was District 8? Um, what advice do you have for them? My advice is to start very early because you're going to need a lot of a long runway to get the organizing together to beat the machine. So start very early. Mm -hmm. uh, be on the ground. People want to know your face, your name. People don't like to see somebody just come around in election time. Mm -hmm. That's that's a big hurdle you're going to get. If people just heard about you and it's about to be election time, they're going to say, well, you're just a wannabe politician who's asking me for my vote because you want to be the guy in charge. So you have to have a real serious and honest, established connection with the community. Mm -hmm. and, and finally, I would say, talk about issues that people really, really care about. You know, um, being a generic progressive candidate and running on generic progressive issues is going to be good to get progressive voters, but you need to speak to the community in general. Mm -hmm. And so you need to talk about the issues that really matter to most people in the district. Yeah. So I think that you try to make yourself like a Bernie knockoff or AOC knockoff or any person knockoff, it's not going to work. You need to, and that's something that we we fought against a lot is people just seeing us as the generic Bernie candidate. You know, you have to be seen as, as yourself and, and offer something unique uh, and add something to the conversation, not just sort of be like the clone of another candidate that people like. So that those would be my my uh, big pieces of advice to anybody who wants to run. I appreciate that because you know I, I'm definitely interested too uh, in running for office. So um, that's really helpful. Um, I'm gonna let you go because I know you have a busy schedule. You have a baby. You've got you know your family to take care of. Um, but this was a really great conversation. It was really good catching up. Do you have any last words that you want to say to the audience? Yeah, dude, it's been great. Thank you so much for having me on. I uh, look forward to coming back whenever you have me. Um, if anybody is interested in the work that I'm doing, please check out Force the Issue New Jersey, which on which I sit on the board, the Progressive Democrats of Hudson County, of which I'm a member, and the Good Government Coalition of New Jersey, on which I also sit on the board. These are uh, leftist uh, orgs that are working on various issues across Hudson County for good government to get uh, the establishment out of power and generally to bring good government to the people of Hudson County. You can find me on social media at Osagera2020 is my Twitter, uh, my last name 2020. Uh, I am very responsive on social media and anybody who has any questions, feel free to reach out to me. I'm very accessible. Uh, as you clearly know, uh, anybody who hits me up can Sit, sit down with me for a conversation and I'm always happy to have any conversation that, uh, can, like I said, can help press progressive issues here. So thanks a lot for having me. It's, it's been a great pleasure. And well, real, real quick, uh, the one issue that was interesting in Jersey specifically was the line. Do you have any thoughts on that before we go? Absolutely. So, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm part of the Good Government Coalition in New Jersey, and we're suing to abolish the line. The line is this ballot structure in New Jersey that makes sure that the establishment candidate always wins an election. It's very anti-democratic, um, and it's something that should go. Uh, it's something that we're working on very heavily, including the lawsuits that, that I mentioned. And I think 
people should stay tuned because um, the line is truly the most anti-democratic um, format of having a ballot, and that's why New Jersey has it. And it's something that I think your viewers should uh, research if they, if they haven't heard about it yet. I'm sure they'll be thoroughly disgusted. Yeah, no, absolutely, because it, it is a very dramatic issue, and it's a really important one to talk about. Thank you again for your time, Hector. I really appreciate it, and I, uh, I hope you have a great day today. Awesome. You as well, dude. Thank you. Peace out.